not feeling it. We can do a cold open. Yeah, we could do a cold open. Yeah. So what are we going to talk about? I mean, that's the point of a cold open is that you jump right into the conversation. You're listening to Advancing Education, the Alberta Student Podcast, where we talk about student issues, news, we conduct interviews, we do all sorts of other kinds of things like that. My name is Emmanuel Barker, and I'll be your host. Stay tuned for the rest of the episode. Hello and welcome back to Advancing Education, the Alberta Student Podcast. My name is Emmanuel Barker and I'm an advocate for students in Alberta. Today, our episode is starting with a warning. Our episode discussion is going to focus entirely on sexual violence policy reform. So if you don't feel comfortable with that discussion, please know that you're welcome to stop the episode or skip it and come back at a time when you're ready or not at all. That said, if you do feel ready for the content, please stay for the rest of the episode. I'm going to discuss the current situation of sexual violence policies on campuses today. Then I'm going to talk about our policy document that recommends the reforms. We're also going to have interviews with Kristen Rayworth, who's a well-known sexual violence survivor advocate in Canada. We're going to talk to Garrett Kohler, who's a former SAIT student leader, as well as former chair of ASEC and a pioneer of this particular policy. And we're going to talk to Chloe Collins, who's a current board member at ASEC, a student leader at the Alberta University of the Arts Student Association, and a federal advocate with our Federal Student Advocacy Alliance. And lastly, we're going to talk to Shannon Humphreys, who's a member of our Equity and Diversity Committee and a student leader at the Student Association of Red Deer College. I hope you enjoy this episode. Sexual violence policy reform has been a major issue for the ASEC student leaders for well over three years, but about a year ago on February 24th, 2020, ASEC, the SAIT Student Association, and the Students for Consent Culture decided to draft this public release and put it on our website. It got a lot of attention, and we're really glad it did. Because one of the people that we reached out to was Dimitrios Nikolaides, the Minister of Advanced Education. Here was his response. Quote, Students have been clear that more needs to be done to address campus sexual violence. This is a priority for our government, and I'm committed to working with our students and institutions in their efforts to end sexual violence on campus because every individual has the right to be safe, respected, and free from harm. End quote. In addition to those public comments, Minister Nicolaides over the past year has been very supportive of our pursuit of reforming the sexual violence policies across campuses in Alberta. We've participated in meetings with him and the Minister of Culture, Multiculturalism, and the Status of Women, as well as a ton of events that have been hosted by either the Ministry or the Department of Advanced Education to provide opportunities for feedback from students regarding the issues that are important to them. And sexual violence policy reform is almost always on our list of things that we talk to the minister about. But as always, there's more to be done before the institutions across Alberta adopt our sexual violence policy recommendations. Right now, I'm going to introduce a little bit of an overview of our document and discuss exactly why we think our policies are important. Bottom line, sexual violence is a concern on Alberta post-secondary campuses. While many institutions have engaged in a process with their respective faculty, staff, and student associations, the students have expressed concerns that there's little consistency across policies and that there's no quality check on the standalone policy, which supports survivors through a difficult and challenging time. The nature of sexual violence is unique when compared to other acts of violence. Survivors often blame themselves, they do not know what to do, or they are re-victimized by people unaware of the survivor's experience unintentionally. Too often, institutions and policies and procedures are difficult to locate or comprehend and thus exacerbate the harm a survivor experiences. Students need all post-secondary institutions to have standalone sexual violence policies that are comprehensive and, importantly, separate from the regular student conduct disciplinary process. Also, the policy needs to be survivor-centric. That is, the policy must address and support the survivor while the process is being completed, always leaving the ultimate control in the hands of the survivor. The policies must also provide immunity for individuals reporting minor drug or alcohol use that occurred before the assault. Because without that aspect, survivors are less likely to report the violence, fearing they will either be blamed for causing or be complicit in the assault. In addition, survivors may not report the violence because they hear that their alcohol or drug use may weaken their claim and may result in being sanctioned themselves for potentially breaking the student code of conduct. These factors decrease the desire for a survivor to report the violence, let alone engage in a formal complaint process. And lastly, the importance of these policies is not just for the benefit of the individual student. As with all the policies, sexual violence policies would also apply to faculty and staff, as well as community members that venture onto campus. Ensuring the process is clear, accessible, and easy to understand will provide protection for all members of the campus community while also protecting the institution. Our purpose in supporting this policy, bringing it to government, promoting it with the podcast, is to make post-secondary safer for everyone involved. 
The bottom line is we won't have more women in apprenticeship programs until institutions are safe. Alberta has lower enrollment per capita than the other provinces, and that won't change until our institutions are safe at a very base level. Now, we're committed to working with the government of Alberta, working with the institutions, working with all the other stakeholders in developing an advanced education system which is protective of the rights and safety of all students, and this is where it starts. Sexual violence policy reform is essential. And I hope you find that with the rest of the interviews and the rest of this podcast, that you'll see that as well. Thank you for listening. Having heard a little bit about our call for policy reform and why it's important, I'm now going to turn to my interview with Garrett Kohler. Garrett's going first because he's a pioneer of this particular policy. He developed it as a student leader at the State Student Association, and he brought it to provincial attention as the chair of the ASEC Board of Directors. He's also continued to advocate for it as an independent student at the University of Alberta, as you'll hear. I hope you enjoy the interview. I'm here with Garrett Kohler, a student at the University of Alberta and a former ASEC student leader to talk about the sexual violence policy reform uh, recommendations that we've been making to institutions and to the provincial government most recently um, at our meetings with uh, Minister Ahir of Culture, Multiculturalism and the Status of Women, as well as Minister Demetrius Nicolaides of Advanced Education. Um, Garrett, why don't you introduce yourself and then we can sort of talk about how you got started producing those uh, policy recommendations. Well, thank you very much, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Emmanuel, and it's uh, great to be talking about such an important issue. Uh, yeah, as noted, my name is Garrett Kohler. Uh, I used to be a student leader at the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology as their VP external, and I got involved uh, through um, into ASEC through uh, my position there. Uh, I'm currently studying political science uh, and with a minor in sociology at the University of Alberta, and I have my first undergraduate diploma from SAIT in human resources. Um, I first got into the student movement quite early, actually, in high school, as I noticed lots of discrepancies on how students were treated and how institutions and schools went about treating those issues and how they were broached on the possible solutions that could be provided for students. When I entered into the post-secondary system, uh, those issues became amplified. They were no longer you know, my uh, no longer petty issues that high school students face. They were real serious adult issues, one being sexual violence on campus, one that is rampant on Canadian campuses, not just Alberta campuses. So after involving myself in the clubs uh, section of my student association, I decided to run uh, for executive council. Uh, uh, upon being successful, I found myself uh, having the required resources to move forward on uh, advocacy issues like sexual violence, and uh, the rest is history. Uh, I've uh, been able to, w with uh, support from ASEC, my own student association, the Canadian Alliance Student Associations, um, have been able to push this uh, past the institutions to the provincial level, and uh, and, fortunately, and and very fortunately to the federal level. So, yeah, it's been a great journey, and uh, but still lots to be done. Lots to be done is right. Um, and you were you you in, in drafted the initial policy that uh, that ASEC was work that SATSA was working with, and then uh, you were a big part of ASEC picking it up as a major priority and reaching out to students for consent culture. Do you want to talk about how um, you came to understand the importance of the issues outlined in the document? Yeah. So the document uh, just. Just a brief is, is actually a, a brief document that actually calls for larger action. The document provides nine policies and three uh, nine policies that we'd like to see institutions implement, and three that we'd like uh, three policies that we'd like to see omitted from any sexual violence uh, conduct. These uh, these policies were originally actually uh, drafted and created by Students for Consent Culture. I interacted with an individual named Paxton, who was from Halifax, um, and they created their group after the Dalhousie incidences, uh, incidents. And um, I felt I was a young student leader at the time, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and I didn't know a direction to take. But upon hearing the, you know, hard data of how bad sexual violence was across Canadian campuses, as a student leader, I couldn't go back to my campus and, and not address it. And it came actually at a fortunate time because the committee that was in charge of reviewing state sexual violence policies was actually in a transition year and they were looking at, at redoing them. So it seemed like a, 
opportune time to jump on that uh, on that advocacy issue. I had support from state staff as well as my VP academic Tanya Pittis on developing the policies and developing uh, the short list of the policies that we'd like to see. Now, some of you might ask, why is it a short policy? Why not, you know, ask for a full range of policies that protect so many much more, so many, you know, a broader range of students and a broader range of circumstances? Well, to be honest with you, institutions don't listen to students. When we submitted our recommendations uh, to the committee, we were flat out ignored by the chair. The chair didn't even pass it along to the the rest of the committee, and and that and it forced our forced our hand to really pick and choose what policies we would want to put forward because institutions didn't have any interest in listening to the student association. So that's how the nine policies or the policy document have, have come to fruition uh, with help from SATSA and with help from Students for Consent Culture. I was able to pitch it towards ASEC uh, to a very enthusiastic board and they were able to put it on the lobby document and uh for about that's for it's been on the lobby document for three years now i believe it's yeah that's right yeah to my understanding years. that's true yeah uh and and some notable we've, we've met with the minister of advanced education when the ndp was in marlon schmidt i was able to meet with a one-on-one meeting with joe cc the, the at the time the previous finance minister and after the election uh government turnover uh, again, as noted, the Minister of Advanced Education, Dimitrios Nikolaitis, and uh, and the Minister of uh, Multiculturalism and the other uh, department she's a part of uh, administered here. So it's, a, again, long process, but that's how um, that's how it's come to fruition, uh, Emmanuel. Yeah, thank you. And so which of these are, uh, I mean, I should start off by asking. So is do does one of these policy recommendations speak most, like speak highest to you? Which one do you hold in the highest regard if you had to pick one? And what kind of um, experiences that were were you aware of taking place at institutions that motivated you to, to add it or to make sure that it made the short list from the larger SFCC document? Yeah, one of my, one of my actually, one of the ones that actually stood out for me that I, I wanted to ensure was on our recommendations was protection for varsity athletes and alcohol consumption on uh, on campus. Lots of institutions could inquire into the case when reported if a varsity athlete or a student was drinking uh, either at, at a campus party or for a varsity athlete at an away travel game. Uh, clearly, you know, it, it's against the rules to uh, drink uh, heavily on campus, as it's noted in the in the residence bylaws, and it's also noted in uh, varsity bylaws that you're not allowed to drink on away games. But say someone does, and then they are assaulted, sexually assaulted while intoxicated, if they brought that forward to the institution, the institution could, instead of dealing with the sexual assault case, ding the student for being intoxicated on campus or at an away game and actually expel them or ask them to leave the institution for a certain amount of time. Excuse me, what? The, you know, while 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 you know the student was in is was infraction of the bylaw, there's no way it breaking the law as some as sexual assault would be. So I decided uh, definitely I fought tooth and nail with my committee to ensure varsity athletes and students on campus were protected from unwarranted expulsion from the institution because they were intoxicated and 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 it really started to put onus on the institution to make sure that they did their part in addressing the rampant uh sexual violence problem on campus right so that's included in a specific immunity clause for minor drug and alcohol use i also think that the anonymous and third-party complaint options do some to cover what you're talking about where a person might be you know, disinclined to go and reach out and make a disclosure. But if they could do it through a friend, they could find out what the potential like circumstances of their case or the review would be before they actually like engaged personally on it. And that I I hope will bring more people to make disclosures or try to find a friend to work with third party complaint options because no disclosures doesn't mean there's no sexual violence. It just means that people are too afraid to come forward because of either the consequences like you mentioned for varsity athletes or for other people who might be alienated for having come forward potentially against like a um, uh, a prominent person. We have a speaker on the podcast, Kristen Rayworth, who who had a very similar experience to that. And I want to I want to say that I think that the one that's 
stands out to me the most is removing the the non-disclosure agreements or the or the um, the gag orders in in the complaint process because that really poses an obstacle to people wanting to disclose to their institution. I just I don't see why if that was in place someone would even bother communicating with their institution. I'm really glad that you included that initially. Well, and and you make a good point uh, on the disclosure. And one thing that I think leads into disclosure is the policy that we recommended to allow for restorative justice. There is a common theme within the sexual violence uh, activism movement that needs to address how males perceive sexual violence. The majority of the time, victims want restorative justice. Restorative justice is um, talking to the victim with a third party, or talking to the perpetrator with a third party to allow the perpetrator to know that they've done something wrong. Because half the time, more than half the time, the perpetrator didn't know they sexually assaulted, didn't know that they went too far. There's a lot of the times where communication between the two parties wasn't clear enough and something went awry. And this restorative justice will allow victims to talk to the institution for the institution to make recommendations and adjustments to class schedules, uh, to events, to uh, study areas that allow the perpetrator and the survivor to be able to continue to go to school, to be communicate what happened, no legal framework, uh, no legal repercussions involved, but just clear communication on the issue so that it doesn't happen again and that the victim can continue to receive education. I agree. I think that those are really, really important parts. And one of my favorite things about this policy recommendation is that there are both sides of the coin represented in the policy. I mean, from the one perspective that you mentioned, the restorative, the the possibility for restorative justice, where the you know the complainant could speak with the accused with a third party present, an ombudsperson, if you will, or someone else like that, to be able to help mediate that conversation and make sure that both sides are aware of the circumstances or the perspectives that each opposite them hold. But that that said, the policy also calls for protection from face-to-face encounters during the complaints process for people who are afraid of a circumstance like that, or additional survivor-centric interim measures to, to, to help people and encourage them to come forward with their experiences. That said, on the other side of the coin, like I mentioned, um, there are also included clear timelines that ensure due process. So nobody is meant to be cheated or to be hurt by this process, but the timelines, the protection from face-to-face encounters are meant to try and support the validity of the process from both perspectives. And that's something I think that is unique and important to the policy recommendation that we're making. Okay, so we're ending the, we're getting close to the end of the time slot for this particular interview. Is there something else you'd like to add? Um, I know that, I know that one of the things that I want to ask is, are you still working on this? I mean, I know you are, but I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on the sexual violence policy recommendations and what you're doing about it now as, as a regular student, not somebody in a position of student leadership. Yeah, I think, well, it's important to continue advocacy, especially the advocacy efforts that you you started in the student movement after you've exited it. It is such a long process that uh, any goal needs to be continued. So I, I encourage any student leader listening to this to, after your exit of, in the student movement to please stay in touch with your SA or your SU um, and to continue to engage in the advocacy efforts because you hold institutional knowledge and you hold a lot of information. Uh, that will help your new student leader push uh, goals that will help all students across Alberta. So what are you uh, working have, on right now? And what would you what would you like to see moving forward? Yeah, I've, I so I, I have continued my my work on sexual violence policy recommendations. Um, I'm currently uh, looking to change the narrative. I, I'd like to start framing sexual violence um in the in in the for uh, in the scope of uh, women in trades when i served on the board of the uh, of my board the southern alberta institute of technology students association board as the vp external i heard horror stories emmanuel of how women are treated within the trades and the funny thing is is that you know the government seems to continue to pump in funding for women's and trades access when it's actually a bullying issue, when it's actually a sexual violence issue, when it's actually boiling down to human rights issues, that women cannot enter this field of trades work specifically because of the harassment, 
because of the insistent sexual uh, progressions by males towards females, the stories that I heard from fellow students on the board made me tear up. It was absolutely unacceptable. So now with a conservative government, with someone who has such a focus on the trades, I'd like to start changing the narrative to women's and trades, protecting women's and trades. Now, that's not, that's not to say that sexual violence is not rampant across universities and other institutions that do not include the trades. There, there is as much there as in the trades, but we need, I believe, to start cookie, cookie crumbling this problem and trying to eat one piece at a time. And I think with the conservative government, I think that's a focus on trades and ensuring females in the trades who are underrepresented are safe to progress in that sort of education. Now, so something that ASEC has been doing most recently is um, we're working on messaging to make sure that exactly that point is known. What we're working on is a, is a, is a campaign to make sure that we want to support women in the trades. We want to encourage women to move into the trades. We think that there, we agree with the government that there is a parity of esteem between trades and a university education. And the fact is that we won't have more women apprentices unless they feel safe during their education. And that's just the bottom line. It's time to make them safe and it's time to reform sexual violence policies on campuses. But it's time to make students safe in post-secondary institutions from across Alberta. So thank you so much for joining us for this podcast, Garrett. I want you to, I, I'm, I'm so proud that you're continuing your work and I couldn't be happier for you. Thank you very much for allowing me to speak on this issue and keep up the good work in Edmonton, Emmanuel. Thank You're you. very welcome. Thank you so much. Take care, guys. Having heard from Garrett about where the development of this policy started and where he took it as a student leader, I now want to turn to two current ASEC student leaders. The first one is going to be Chloe Collins, who's a member of our board of directors, as well as a member of our Federal Student Advocacy Alliance. And then we're going to talk to Shannon Humphreys, who's a member of our Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee, for their perspectives on why this policy is important at Alberta campuses. I hope you enjoyed their interview. I'm here now with Chloe Collins, the Vice President External for the Alberta University Arts Student Association and a board member here at ASEC for the second year in a row, also coming into an exciting new position as of the last couple of months. Um, Chloe, why don't you introduce yourself and talk about what uh, your experience as a student leader has been? Hi, Emmanuel. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm thrilled to be here. Totally welcome. As you've mentioned, uh, my name is Chloe Collins. I am currently a board of directors member for ASEC. I'm also the VP external at Alberta University of the Arts Students Association. So this is my second term there. So I've definitely seen a lot of um, positive changes and things happen throughout my time with ASEC and with working with, um, yeah, working with ASEC on a provincial level has really helped our institution a lot and really given us a good idea of what we should be pushing for both on a provincial and a federal level. Oh, that's great. That's, that is really good. Cause a lot of the ASEC sort of asks that you've been involved in, um, promoting have a lot to do with your experience on your own campus. And one of the things that we've been pushing for really hard and is the topic of this, uh, episode of the podcast is our standardized sexual violence policies. I know that you've been doing some work in your own campus about third-party sort of ombuds people person situation. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So we have been putting forward a proposal um, to have an ombuds person on campus. And for those of you who don't know what the role of an ombuds person is, essentially they are a neutral go-between between the institution, the faculty, the students, and the student association. So if we have any sort of conflict resolution issues, they're the person that we turn to to ensure that everyone has a fair shake, everyone's opinions and voices are heard, and ultimately we come to a solution that works for everyone. That's great. So I hope that it would be that person maybe when the sexual violence standardized policies are released or they are adopted by different institutions. Do you think that that would be a good person to select to be the independent third party member of the appeal committee when it comes to sexual violence disclosures and processes? Definitely. It's important for us to have someone in that position who's able to facilitate it in a really neutral way and just to ensure that, you know, whoever is bringing these complaints forward 
they are properly protected and the law is being followed. And we're also making sure that, you know, it's a neutral mediation between the two parties that are involved. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the issues that we face on campus with the appeals process, it's definitely there. There are a lot of things um, that it leaves to be desired, not just in sexual violence, but uh, when we come to situations where we have an appeal for non-academic misconduct, for example, it's a really uh, tricky situation to navigate being a student because you don't necessarily have a defined advocate in the room advocating for you. I mean, we as the student association do our best to make sure that we're involved in that process, but ultimately it's up to the student whether or not they would like us to be there. Yeah, exactly. By having an ombudsperson involved, that student isn't put in a position where they have to ask for further help. It's just provided. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think the other implications in the sexual violence policy reform document that we've created would have a big difference on your in your institution for students? Definitely. And I mean, being at an arts institution, statistically, we have students with a higher percentage of uh, mental health struggles and differences. And uh, if you look at yeah, if you look at the statistics, unfortunately, those members of the vulnerable population end up being people that are more or less likely to report those types of situations where sexual violence has occurred. And if they don't feel supported by our institution and properly advocated for, you know, they're not going to bring those complaints forward and we're kind of at a loss to help them. Yeah, and that means you're not doing your job and I'm not doing my job either. So it's one of the exactly. reasons why we're trying to move for this reform kind of movement. We're trying to make people feel safe and encourage people to uptake or to take up post-secondary education. And one of the reasons that um, we've included that recognition of the intersectional impacts of sexual violence in our document is because of exactly what you said, that people who are from marginalized communities tend to be disproportionately affected by rates of sexual violence anywhere, not just in post-secondary institutions, but there as well. Um, are there other aspects of the document that you find particularly poignant for your for your situation? I don't want to put you on the spot necessarily, but I'm hoping that you have a couple of points that you would think are more important or less important. I'm, I'd love to hear your opinion on that. Yeah. One that really stands out for me is this specific immunity clause for minor drug and alcohol use. Yeah. I mean, this is this is something that anyone who reports a sexual assault or any type of sexual violence they're always going to be scrutinized for. And it's it's completely unjust, to be quite frank. And the types of policies that are in place on campus with the no tolerance policies for drug and alcohol abuse leave a large loophole for sexual violence claims to be dismissed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that that would probably disproportionately affect institutions like your small institutions. Uh, in, in other cases, like the independent institutions would likely have problems with that, where there are sort of codes of conduct that are perhaps more stringent, where someone would not want to come forward with a disclosure in case they had, you know, gone outside the, the, the rules of that code of conduct and feared repercussions. So what mm-hmm. we're trying to do is not you know, make it difficult, make it more difficult for people going through a proper like adjudication or like some kind of review or conduct process. We're trying to make sure that we get more disclosures so that people aren't necessarily suffering in silence. That's what this is about. And it's certainly not to excuse someone throwing an absolute rager and then having the their disclosure be some kind of like vexatious way of getting past or getting out of those you know, circumstances of having destroyed their dorm room or something. What we're talking about is an immunity clause for minor drug and alcohol use so that people feel comfortable coming forward or making, if they have to, third party complaint uh, like processes, which is another thing that we're hoping to include in our policies that we see across the province, those anonymous and third party complaint options. Exactly. And I think it's really important that we have different levels of consideration because ultimately, you know, we don't want to have a blanket statement that wouldn't allow for students to come forward if they had some sort of minor uh, drug and alcohol in their system. You know, we don't want to have a blanket clause that says there's a no tolerance policy for any of that because it's all dependent on situations and we can't be looking at it as a black and white picture. I completely agree. Yeah. Situationally specific circumstances shouldn't, you you can't obscure the fact that a very much more serious circumstance is taking place than the minor drug or alcohol use. 
I just, it, it makes me a gas. It's like some of the issues that we've outlined in this paper, just it, it crushes me that they still exist. Things like gag orders during or beyond the complaint process that restrict people from sharing their experiences, threatening sanctions for malicious or false complaints. It's like the circumstances under which those take place or so, the, the vexatious complaints take place are so minor that, you know, it's just very, it, it's almost not important to include. I'm glad that we've pointed out that it should be excluded. Um, I hope the institutions take that to heart and realize that the statistics just don't support those kinds of policies for existing. Another mm -hmm. things like removing time limits for filing formal complaints. I just, how can you, how can you even do that? If the judicial system in Canada doesn't have statute of limitations for sexual assault, how can institutions like post-secondaries have them? It's just completely contrary to the way that our laws work and infuriates me. Um, so yeah, well, I really appreciate your contributions here. I just want to talk about some of the advocacy that you've been doing with ASAC. You, you are a board member and you've been to a number of our advocacy week, or two, I guess, two of our advocacy week events, <laughs> but you're also a part of our new federal program. Do you want to talk about that? The kind of exciting movement that we're working yeah, on? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm really excited to be a part of the federal student advocacy Alliance, which, you know, Full disclosure, I definitely named it, so very proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it's been a really exceptional experience being able to work with that small team to bring that forward, and I'm very excited to be working with BCFS and Saskatchewan Polytechnic on that. I, I so, can, yeah, absolutely. The yeah. British, British Columbia Federation of Students is is a, a great organization. I'm so lucky that we've managed to partner with them in moving forward with our federal advocacy program, and I'm. I'm really excited to have people like you and Brittany, our other federal um, advocacy representative, being bringing forward issues like this into the public light and into the federal sphere. So thank you so much for coming on. Do you have any last comments that you want to talk about? Um, maybe things that you think should be included in this document, things we've missed, um, or any kind of final, final thoughts before we end the show? I did just want to touch a little bit on clear timelines. So this being another one of our asks, I think that this is also a huge deal because students don't really feel comfortable coming forward with these if they don't see any real way of solving the issue or of coming to some sort of understanding and closure. So I think, you know, if institutions are going to implement anything from this policy, well, I should rephrase that. One of the major things that they really need to focus on when they're implementing this kind of policy is to have clear timelines which are set up, which are accessible to all students. So everyone knows the rules of, of the process. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I completely, completely agree with that. One of the things that I think is, um, is also really important, yo, clear timelines that ensure due process. Cause like clear timelines don't just support people who are making disclosures. They're also making the circumstances a lot more clear to people who are facing accusations. And both of those are important. Mm -hmm. And it's not just important because of like the automatic assumption that due process goes out the window as soon as you make a survivor-centric policy. It's like, I get that people have concerns, obviously. What I'm trying to say is that you're going to have more people come forward who may not fit your understanding of what a survivor or an accused person looks like. And if the process is, is complete, it's well thought out, then you're going to have a much more wholesome whole like wholesale understanding of what actual circumstances of sexual violence are like on your campus and that kind of important information is going to it's only going to inform the policies into the future you're going to find things that work things that don't work and then you're going to adapt them and make them more perfect that's one of the reasons why we've included clear timelines that ensure due process and the removal of time limits for filing formal complaints it's not just to protect um, the process or due process, but it's, it's there to encourage people to come forward. The last thing that I want to mention, and this was mentioned in another one of the conversations I've had on this topic too, is that just because you're having more disclosures doesn't mean you're having more instances of sexual violence. Like you have people feeling more comfortable coming forward with their itch issues. Maybe people are making more third party or anonymous sort of, um, disclosures. And that information is only going to serve to better inform research moving forward on each institution and better inform the policies moving forward. So I'm, I'm really proud of this document. 
of the work that we've done with the SFCC as well as with SATSA. And I'm so glad that you decided to come on to the episode today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't shout out Garrett Kohler for being such a huge part of bringing this um, policy forward and advocating so hard on this last year. Oh, he absolutely is. And he's going to be the next interview that I'm doing. So I'm sure he'll appreciate that little shout out when the episode airs. Awesome. Thanks, All right. Emmanuel. Thank you. Take care, Chloe. Bye-bye now. Bye. I'm here with Shannon Humphreys, who's a vice president with the Students Association of Red Deer College. Shannon, why don't you talk about, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and you can talk about kind of your portfolio and what sort of stuff has been happening at SARDC regarding sexual violence programming. Sure, yeah. So my name is Shannon Humphrey. I am the vice president academic for Red Deer College Students Association, or Students Association of Red Deer College. I suppose I should say it in the right order. (laughs) Uh, So I have quite a broad portfolio right now. I'm sitting on quite a lot of uh, committees. We're doing a lot of policy work, a lot of procedural overhaul um, at the institution level, actually. Uh, So today I sat in on a course outline update policy committee type thing. Um, And I I sit on quite a lot of policy committees where we're talking about more inclusion within our our student population and writing them right into the policies. Um, So a a lot of the work that I'm doing right now is working with uh, a number of people from staff, faculty, um, student association across the college to kind of try and get a really broad perspective on policy and procedure and how it applies to each different stakeholder group and then incorporate a lot of that work right within our policies and our procedures. That's really Um, interesting. That's kind of like um, the direct democracy model that you see with uh, some countries that do referendum sort of decision-making processes and getting your members engaged in in their own policy development. I think that's really interesting. Do you have something specifically on the sexual violence piece that you do similar to that, or do you have different kinds of programming? Yeah, so with the the sexual violence piece of it, what we do is we fall under the sexual violence policy for Red Deer College, uh, which also comes with the guidebook for reporting and um, dealing with different allegations of, of sexual violence on campus. So what it does is it kind of sets out the framework for what that policy and, and the purpose for that policy, which I think is really important. Um, so right within that policy, the purpose for it is... Uh, a belief in the application of equality. And then it, we kind of specified gender, gender identity, expression, sexual orientation, um, cultures of consent, and tools that are best to create that campus free from sexual violence. Yeah, I think that's really important. And that's one of the big reasons why ASAC and SATSA and our work with the Students for Consent Culture Organization came up with you know, some of these recommendations as well, like making sure that there's a gender justice aspect to the recommendations that we're bringing forward was really important to us. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's definitely something important at Red Deer College. And right along with that policy, what we do is we do a lot of awareness events. Uh, So some of them are national recognition events. Some of them are a little more local. So we collaborate with a lot of community organizations, uh, particularly the the Central Alberta Sexual Assault Center, uh, they come in and they do some work with us. Um, we've done a couple of different events with them. So they've come in and they've done different events like uh, an event that they call Walk a Mile in Her Shoes. And what they do is they bring in a giant bin full of all different sizes of heels and then they set up a little obstacle course. And this is obviously prior to COVID. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, little more complicated now, but... Uh, yeah, they would kind of set up a little obstacle course in our, our forum and they would get people to put on the heels and walk through the obstacle course. And throughout there, there would be some different trivia and some uh, different facts or different resources that people could access. And then at the end, they would have a big, we kind of had like a big whiteboard where you could write down what you got out of the event or something that you learned that you didn't know. Um, or we would have a big piece of paper where you could put your handprint on and leave a message. Right, of course. Sometimes people need like a really tangible example of how inequality exists and making a bunch of dudes walk around in high heels is kind of a very like a very uh, significant or very, you know, tangible way (laughs) of making people understand that there's even just like that very underlying level of inequality, that there's an expectation, you know, 
women or feminine identifying people would go through that additional level of sort of difficulty, even just walking down the halls. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And it was, it was quite funny. I sat in a different role last year. I was our uh, member engagement assistant and I had a couple of people who worked for me called the street team. And what actually ended up happening is me as someone who's not a very feminine person, I lasted about five minutes in heels and was like, Nope, I'm done. And uh, (laughs) my, my street teamer who was a very masculine looking man. um, He lasted the entire day in heels. Like he did the whole event in that set of heels and he was pulling people from the trades wing to come over. And as people would walk to get their Tim Hortons, he'd strut out in his heels and he'd kind of be like, Hey, come on over, try this obstacle course. And it was, it was amazing. It was a really cool event. (laughs) That, that is really fun. I like that. Cause that's a, that's one of those things maybe you'd learn that you hadn't expected before that some people have a certain proficiency for some things. I I don't know. That sounds fun. Um, But a good way to learn at the same time and sort of as a little bit of a tie-in if you're ready for a segue ASAC itself our organization is trying to learn from our members and that's one of the reasons why we developed our EDI committee or the equity and diversity inclusion committee Um, Mm -hmm. I know that you're a member of that I wonder if you talk a little bit about your experience with the EDI committee and some of the ways that we're trying to bring more inclusiveness to our organization in general yeah, absolutely. And this is something from my understanding that was created brand new this year. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this was something that I was really excited about. And where that came from for me was really a want to look more at diversity inclusion in campus and look on how it applied to gender and sexual diversity, as well as um, indigenous identities. So those two things were really from my personal experience, because those are things that I identify with. Um, right. But that policy covers, or not policy, that committee covers so many different things. Um, we have international students who bring a really unique perspective that I never would have gotten without having that conversation with them. And, you know, we've got quite a few different people from quite a few different walks of life. And it's it's really neat to see all of those perspectives in one room really trying to do what's best for everyone. And, you know, go through different things like the internal operations manual or bylaws and policy and and really be mindful of not only using gender inclusive language but using culturally inclusive language using different languages that really speaks to the importance for that equity that we're trying to achieve within all realms of post-secondary i absolutely agree you know the the edits that you're talking about to the iom some of the one of the first things that i did when i first came to asac you know not quite not quite two years ago was uh, taking the IOM in its review stage and trying to make it more gender inclusive or at least gender like ambiguous. It, you don't need to have gendered, you know, words or language in anything, you know, especially in something as vague or impersonal as like a policy document or a bylaw document. Like that was that was one of the things that I took on first off. And, and I'm, I'm glad to see that there's some level of, you know, diversity and inclusion being added to the other areas of ASEX governance sort of uh, documents in general. I, I'm, I couldn't be happier about the work that our director of operations and finance, Naomi Pell, is doing at the EDI committee and the other members such as yourself. So I appreciate you for that work. I, I want to say now towards um, the sort of specific issue of the podcast today is that we're talking about the um, the document that ASEC has come out with in conjunction with SFCC and the SAIT Student Association regarding sexual violence. I wonder if I could get your thoughts as both um, an SARDC member and a member of our of, of our ASEC EDI committee kind of on what those recommendations are and the importance for having those recommendations taken up from by institutions from across the province. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think this is such an important document because what it comes down to for me and I think a lot of our members is removing the stigma surrounding discussing things like sexual violence or sexual violence policy. Even even discussing policy and how it would apply can be a really big challenge for some people because it's scary to talk about, it's uncomfortable to talk about. And really trying to break down that stigma to, to make it okay to talk about, but also to make it a safe space. And, and really at the end of the day, we want all post-secondary campuses to be that safe space for students. That's why we go to post-secondary is to learn and to grow as individuals and to really engage in that academic knowledge where we can start applying that. And this is a great way to have that practical experience with all of that intersectional learning that we're, we're 
doing within our institutions and really apply it in a practical way. I, I totally agree. I think that the the document, some of the more important parts of the document from my personal perspective are the parts that that in that try to protect that level of of communication. You know, it's trying to trying to support communication between people and and just keep identity out of it. Like I want the sexual violence policies from across Alberta to be uniformly protective of people no matter their identity. I don't think your identity should matter when you're making a sexual violence report or a third party reporting sort of structure. And those are some of the things that are included in the document. Like the first one is, well, not the first one. The second one is protection from face-to-face encounters during the complaints process. And I feel like anybody undergoing a complaints process for sexual violence should have a reasonable expectation (laughs) to not have to go through face-to-face encounters when you're first talking about someone you're accusing of having sexually assaulted you or harassed you. Same thing going for the survivor-centric interim measures, the anonymous and third-party complaint options. Like We're just trying to protect that communication, keep the communication more open so that people do come forward with those complaints. Did you have other thoughts on the document as well? Yeah, I I think those are two points. Those are actually the two that I had written notes beside uh, because I wanted to talk about them just in the Red Deer College context, but also in the smaller institution context. Well, please go ahead, yeah. Yeah, a, a lot of those things, um, particularly the protection from face-to-face encounters, can be really difficult when you're in a smaller institution where you have one cohort of students who have all of the same classes together. Um, you know, a lot of the times those students, or even if it's staff or faculty within that department, they are together all the time. They have all of the same classes together, their schedules match, and it's it's very it can be kind of challenging to navigate if you're in those smaller settings where there's not necessarily another class that someone could attend to sort of avoid that face-to-face. So it becomes a little more difficult to navigate, and it almost becomes, within the policy, having to address different levels of seriousness as far as repercussions go. And that can get, it can get muddy, to, to be totally honest, because it's, it's a very challenging environment to be in just because of the limited capacity you have to to kind of separate people and especially if you're on a small campus where you know you see everyone every day regardless of what program you're in yeah i think that brings just a little bit of a different dynamic to it from somewhere larger like u of a or you know where they have hundreds of students in every class or huge lecture halls we have much smaller class sizes where we're looking 40 students is kind of our cap for a lot of our classes so yeah for sure yeah very very personal very you're you're together all the time (laughs) yeah I, i would say that one of the one of the thoughts that went into developing this document was to make sure that it was like ubiquitously applicable to all of the institutions that ASAP works with. Uh, I mean, from tiny schools all the way up to some of the really huge schools that we we work with, you know, I mean, RDC tends to be a little bit middle of the line, but still a very community oriented institution. But then we have even even tinier organizations like Ambrose University or giant ones like Nader State. So this kind of policy has to protect people, but has to be ubiquitously, ubiquitously applicable to all of the institutions that we work with. And I think we really hit it, that it is the institution's responsibility, not the student's responsibility, to be you know protected throughout the process. And that's what we're really trying to achieve. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I think that's really important because a lot of the times the perception is that there is a lot of responsibility put on students. You know, we're we're responsible for our learning. We're responsible for our learning environment. And especially now that we're online, we're, we have an even higher level of accountability as far as being present and time management and, and making sure that we're really engaged in our learning process or we start to miss stuff. So I think it's I think it's good to remember that it is the responsibility of the institution. There is a role that staff and faculty play. There is a role that students play. And there is a role that, you know, the Students Association and ASEC and the government play. And I think that it's really important to have those sort of universal norms across all institutions where there is that expectation, for sure. I absolutely agree. I really do. Um, Did you, so we're getting close to the end of our time. Did you have another point that you wanted to touch on? I thought it was the survivor-centric interim measures, but uh, I'll let you introduce it before we have to go. Yeah, for the the survivor-centric interim measures, really some of the things that we, well, that I was kind of considering as I was reading through this was different structures that are in place at the school. So specifically non-academic appeal processes where we're looking at different committees that are dealing with things or different levels of governance within the college but then there's with the sexual violence policies there's also that external where there may be legal things going on there may be things that you can't talk about and you know something that can be really challenging to navigate is 
if you are in one of those cohorted classes with with someone who has either made an accusation or um, someone you have made an accusation against, it can be really challenging to navigate some of those legal things, especially if it's something that you can't talk about. So if you're talking to your professor and you're saying, hey, I need to not be in a group with this person, but I can't tell you why, it, it becomes kind of challenging. And especially, like I said, with those cohort classes where you have much smaller cohorts, smaller class sizes, and, and not a lot of options to sort of separate people. Um, there does become a little bit of uh, a legal component in there that I think we need to be really cognizant that that's something that students may need help navigating if they're put in those situations or faculty and staff maybe need help to navigate or training on how to facilitate it. So it's uh, just something that I kind of made a note on my paper here that was something we really need to be cognizant of and kind of make sure that we have the right student supports in place and different community organizations we can refer to to help really navigate that legal side of it. Yeah, I appreciate you for saying that. I, I I totally agree with you. And that's one of the reasons why the document is as vague as it is, because we're trying to give the institutions leeway to account for those in a way that is more appropriate for their own institution than just a blanket sort of expectation. Um, so thank you so much, Shannon Humphreys, uh, student leader from uh, Student Association of Red Deer College. I want to thank you so much for your time and for uh, for being a part of our EDI committee and for coming on the podcast today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care, Sean. You too. Our last interview today is with Kristen Rayworth. We were lucky enough to get Kristen on the show to talk to us about what was included in our policy and what our perspective was on our approach to sexual violence policy reform. I hope you enjoyed the interview. I'm here this afternoon with Kristen Rayworth uh, to talk about our standalone sexual violence policy recommendations for sexual violence policy reform in post-secondary institutions across Alberta. She's here to comment on the document that we've produced. Um, Kristen, could I ask you to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Um, so like was mentioned, my name is Kristen Rayworth, and I've been an advocate on issues around sexual violence uh, for probably, I guess, now about five years. Uh, specifically, uh, it has been primarily in the field of justice reform, so reform in the courts as well as uh, with police in their dealing with sexual vi- sexual violence survivors and really trying to um, increase equity and equality for survivors across the board in whatever institutions that they touch. So that's been a lot of the focus of the work that I do. Thank you so much. So um, in doing a little bit of background, we've um, been able to, to see that you suffered quite an enormous amount of backlash after making your, your public statements. Uh, and part of our document is trying to protect survivors uh, or people who make disclosures by introducing a couple of other topics. Um, I just wondered if you had thoughts on some of the recommendations that we'd made. I'm thinking specifically about maybe like the third party member of a appeal committees so that there's some level of independence uh, when it comes to post-secondary institutions and their disclosure processes, uh, or anything else that occurs to you? I wonder if you'd comment on that. So and first off, just to take a little bit of a step back, I think one of the things that is really vital that you mentioned in your document and just actually go further with it is around third-party complaints. So a lot of times what you have with survivors when they disclose is they will disclose in bits and pieces or they will... Um, have a sort of sudden outburst and disclose all at one time. And oftentimes they need a lot of support to kind of get to the place where they're willing to move forward with either criminal charges or uh, go to the, their institution or both. So, and sometimes they just need a little bit of time and sometimes they need quite a bit of time. And so sometimes one of the best ways, and it's actually operational in BC in certain areas is a third party complaint system where uh, a designated person. So usually that refers to a counselor or someone in a position of authority is able to make the complaint on behalf of the survivor. And then there's actually um, technology that exists. So what they do is they basically put this into a uh, database, basically put the person's, the complainant's name as well as the, the the accused. And then it sort of hits whether or not there's a, a different complaint made against this person. And at that point, the person who's come forward is 
contacted and asked if they want to move forward at all. So it, it really gives an opportunity for people to take their time because that's one of the biggest things that people need is time to make their own decision. Oftentimes we, I think, encourage and shame people who don't come forward right away but you do sometimes need time. And so we need to create the systems around the survivors so that they can take whatever time they need to choose to come forward. I'm really interested that you brought that up because our document has gone so far as to call for the possibility of anonymous and third-party complaint options. And I think that most of that came from the experience of some of those student leaders that we were working with or some who had been on the front lines of, uh, for example, the, um, the Dalhousie dentist scandal that resulted in the complete change of their sexual violence policy. Uh, it came from the student leaders who themselves as sort of public entities had experienced a lot of um, disclosures, even though it wasn't necessarily, you know, the designated process at that institution. But I imagine for you as a fairly well-known um, sexual violence advocate or um, survivor advocate, uh, that, that you have probably received outreach from a number of individuals who have who have experienced sexual violence or sexual harassment and wanted to come forward but didn't understand the process or were you know, maybe potentially like cautious or nervous about doing it themselves and seeking advice is, would you, would you say that that was the case? Yeah. I mean, I've had a lot of people disclose to me, um, about things that have happened to them. And oftentimes, unfortunately, especially if it's historical, you will find with a lot of people that they're experiencing disclose, their experiences disclosing have been negative. And what frequently happens is they are they are not believed by the people closest to them. And studies show that when you are not supported and believed by the people that you love, that you are less likely to move forward with charges or you are less likely to disclose um, to the academic institution that you attend. So really, a lot of this work links into broader work that's been done, which is really about creating a culture of belief and support for survivors and for the people in our lives when they come forward and ensuring that that is the number one most important thing is that we are supporting people to to make whatever decision is best for them and they are taking their time. But it really does also matter how the institutions respond to them. So whether or not that's been a negative response from the police or a negative response from their academic institution, that also impacts the survivor's ability to heal from what's happened to them. And you know, there are there are some aspects of our document that are focusing on very substantial changes to the sexual violence policies at each institution. Um, but we're requiring, we're, we're hoping, we're advocating for every institution to adopt some form of the document that we've produced. Uh, and one of those things, well, two of the points kind of that tie in together. And the first one is that we're asking for clear timelines to be developed to ensure that there is like a due process, but that not only for due process in terms of having been accused, but also in expectations for people who have made complaints that they would receive timely responses. And part of that is because of the nature of post-secondary where, you know, institutions could simply wait out a student for them to either graduate or drop out and then not really have to go through with the process anymore. But we're also calling for a separation of the student and staff uh, sexual violence approaches so that the, the the responses or the the processes that are gone through on behalf of the institution are are appropriate for each individual person. Do you do you a agree with those assessments? Would you would you say that those are good ways of moving forward? I mean, I, I think that it is important to have, you know, timelines in place. And so that you do know that it's not like you said, it's not going to be dragged out. And there is an opportunity to resolve the matter. And also to bring, to, but I guess the other thing that I would be cautious about is clear timelines and do, do, using the term due process, that terminology really is a justice terminology. So it relates to the, the justice system, which can also exist at the, at a parallel point of this. And so that's, I think, a really important part to remember is it's really vital that there are standalone sexual violence policies in every single institution, but it's also important that the survivor knows and has the support to potentially do both the justice system response and the academic institution response at the same time. So there needs to be some sort of relationship that exists between those two policies, because, I mean, how does a university respond to whether or not a student has been found guilty of a criminal offense? I don't, I don't know if that's consistent across post-secondaries. I don't know what the response and reaction would be to that or how that could potentially negatively or positively impact this process at the same time. So those two, those are, that's something else just to keep in the back of your mind as we move forward on this is how those two things work together. Yeah, that's something that we've been really, really thinking about because to answer one of the points that you brought up, there is an issue where if a student goes through the university process 
process as well as the judicial process that's available to all Canadians. If in the judicial process, the accused is found or acquitted or found not guilty or in any cases where the charges were dropped or something, the institution doesn't have any right to go through with punishment on the same charge. So if the institution does, for example, kick someone out who has been accused of sexual assault and then a regular court or a judicial court fi finds that they were acquitted, then the institution is in a very difficult place of having to bring them back or, you know, withdraw their their punishments because it just wasn't the case or wasn't found that way by the courts. And so we're finding that the semi or the like pseudo judicial process of the of the post-secondary institutions is recommended by the judicial process to be gone through first so that the institution um, has a reasonable sort of like basis for bringing that complaint or the, the individual has a reasonable basis for bringing that complaint onto further courts, but it puts the institutions in a complicated position no matter what. And one of the things that gets lost in that is that students have a really difficult time navigating both processes at the same time, as you mentioned. And one of the things that we're calling for is a number of items or aspects of these uh, sexual violence policies to be removed or to be taken away from the standardized policies that we're proposing. And the biggest reform for me personally would be the removal of gag orders or non-disclosure agreements for people mm -hmm. who are during or going through the complaints process, or even in some cases after the complaints process, which, you know, I just, I, f I find them awful. I wonder if you had, I wonder if you had thoughts on that. They're unnecessarily punitive and they create an environment where a survivor, whether or not this is completely accurate, depending on the institution, the survivor would feel like they do not, they can't go to a counselor because they, they aren't allowed to talk about what's happening or they can't talk to their friends because they aren't allowed to talk. It takes away the opportunity to access supports and services potentially, even if that's not the necessary, the goal of the NDA, that's how they can feel. Right, exactly. And that and that goes for things like time limits for filing a formal complaint or threatening sanctions for vexatious, malicious, or false complaints. It's just the what it does is just tries to convince people not to come forward, try to limit the amount of disclosures. And we find them absolutely, as you said, unnecessarily punitive for people who have already gone through that. And not only like the, the gag orders or the NDAs keep people from that key community, which is a really important aspect of moving on from once the once the whole process is over with trying to trying to heal and move forward and be able to to talk about it with people it puts them the student or the complainant in a very difficult position i think you know it it's really about ensuring that it's fair on both sides and that we are creating an environment in our post-secondaries and consistently across our post-secondaries in this province that that takes this issue seriously and that doesn't dismiss it as, you know, boys will be boys or things happen when you drink or all of those excuses that we've heard so frequently used to dismiss the experiences and feelings of sexual assault survivors. Because when you do that as an institution or you condone it by not saying enough against it, you are creating a culture where it is more likely to happen. What what we're trying to do with this is to encourage people to access post-secondary, to encourage people to go into advanced education and, you know, change their lives for the better, to seek better jobs. And from, from, from that perspective, we have a very difficult position because we're not going to get more women in trades apprenticeship programs unless they feel safe. So we're calling for the institution to, or the institutions generally to reform sexual violence policies and make it safe for, for anybody, honestly, to go to university or go to college and feel safe while they're in those programs. So my last question before I let you go, I want to thank you for being with us for so long already, but I won't, the last question is, I wonder if there's anything that you would add to our policies as we've explained them, or if you find anything that's missing. When we talk about the intersectional impasse of sexual violence, I think it's very important to highlight not just issues around people with disabilities, but race and sexual orientation. And also to highlight that often when we look and think about sexual violence, we think of it as something that, that is perpetrated onto women. And while women do make up a large percentage of people who have experienced sexual violence, men also experience sexual violence. And they are far less likely to report, far less likely to come forward, and far less likely to get the support that they need. So I think that built within any kind of sexual violence policy needs to be an awareness piece and a supporting piece that provides an ability for anyone to come forward, not just the people that fit within kind of a context of what you think sexual violence looks like, because it's so much broader than that. Well, thank you for mentioning that. That is one of the points that we've we've hoped that the recognition of the intersectional impacts of sexual violence will address. And that is a that is a complicated cultural issue, but I completely agree with you that 
a victim of sexual violence could be could be anyone and not only what we would describe as maybe like a like a stereotypical situation but but it really honestly anybody and potentially even someone you would see as like like someone that you would go to and those are those circumstances where we want to support the anonymous or third party disclosures so that you don't have to worry about you know alienating yourself or anybody else when you come forward with that disclosure something that we talk about as as student leaders is that the more we support policies like this the more student associations end up receiving disclosures themselves and the institutions or sometimes even people within the associations find it that it seems as if things are becoming much, much worse. But ASEC's perspective, the SFCC, the State Student Association, we're really hoping that people begin to realize that more disclosures don't necessarily mean increases in sexual violence on campus, but they mean that more people, more people feel more comfortable coming forward with their experiences so that they can reach out and get the help that they need. That's incredibly important to highlight. You're right, because when we saw when I worked with the Alberta Association of Sexual Assault Services and the I Believe You campaign, we saw massive increases of people accessing supports at the sexual assault centers across the province. And that wasn't because there was a massive spike in sexual violence. It was because people were finally starting to feel like they could come forward. And it was a sign of success to us to see that happening because it meant that we were helping to create that culture of belief support for survivors. So you're right. If you see an increase in people coming forward, that means you're policy is working appropriate. That's exactly our perspective as well. I'm so glad that you agree with us. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Kristen Rayworth, for joining us for this conversation. Well-known sexual violence survivor, advocate, and civil servant. Thank you again for your time uh, for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Take care. You too. Bye. On behalf of ASEC, I'd like to extend a special thank you to all of our guests today, but especially Kristen Rayworth and Garrett Kohler for taking time out of their day to join us on this podcast to talk about a very heavy issue. As always, this podcast is for you, so if you're a student and you have something to say, reach out to me at advocacy at albertastudents.ca or go to our website, albertastudents.ca, for more information on anything that we talked about. Lastly, to those students out there, until policies are adopted that make you feel comfortable, continue to reach out to your local sexual assault center or the police if you find yourself in need. Thank you for listening.